the gospel writers differ on exactly when and to whom Jesus appeared in the subsequent days. Mark mentions no appearance except the promise that Christ will come to rejoin his disciples in Galilee. Matthew mentions an appearance to women in Jerusalem, different apparently than the instruction they are given to travel to Galilee where Jesus will be seen. Matthew has Jesus seen in Galilee by 11 disciples on a mountain. And that reminds us again that the Galilee was the locus of several mountains, none of which can be perfectly identified. But on a mountain, Jesus later appears. There is the appearance Luke records to the disciples, too, on the road to Emmaus to the eleven gathered together in Jerusalem all in the same day. And on Easter night, Luke records the ascension. In John 20, there are the appearances to Mary Magdalene and to the disciples without Thomas, and then one week later to Thomas, who has said he will not believe until he thrusts his hand into the side but when he sees Jesus, without doing that, he cries out, My Lord and my God. But there's a mild rebuke in Jesus' statement to Thomas that, Blessed are they who, having seen, believed. The Book of Mormon adds the phrase, More blessed, not just blessed, are those who believe having not seen. But ultimately, the highest privilege I suggest here is to see, to hear, and to embrace. Traditions do exist that in the, well, it's a second century document, that actually Peter touched the nail marks in Jesus' hands, that Thomas fell into the lance wound that pierced his side, and that Andrew felt his footprints, that is, the prints of the nails in his feet. Whether those traditions are true or not, we have in Third Nephi the record of men, women, and children, 2,500 of them, who had this privilege and who bathed his feet in their tears. I submit that the whole religious world, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and the world religions have lost touch with touch. I submit that it is this truth which transcends all others, that the highest spirituality of which man is capable is a glorified body that Jesus Christ was and is the archetype of this. We often say that he granted this blessing to all mankind, and it is true that the death of the body will be transcended by every man and woman who ever lived, but there are other kinds of death he came to break and reverse, and they are not unconditional. They are totally conditional upon our response to him. And modern revelation makes it clear that even now, even as we live now in this world, 
we are each of us quickened by one of the three main orders of glory. We are of a telestial spirit, and resurrection for us will be a telestial resurrection. We are of a terrestrial, or finally of a celestial quickening. And says the promise, they who are quickened, meaning here, are quickened here by a portion of the celestial glory shall then, namely in the resurrection, receive a fullness of that glory. And their glory shall be that glory by which they are now quickened. Hence, the prophet Joseph Smith could say, let these truths sink deeply into your hearts that even here you may begin to enjoy that which shall be hereafter. I stood in this very place with President Hubie Brown, who was then in his declining years and much afflicted. I asked him, does the resurrection mean of the life of all mankind only, or what of the other forms of life? What of the animals? What even of vegetative life, and he replied with the confidence of a special witness, all life. We can say this is true, not because we are dependent upon the probabilities, and at best they are probabilities, of the record, but because of first-hand, present-day, direct witness of those who have known the living God and his Christ. We are now standing at Dominus Flevit. We're about a third of the way down from the highest point of the Mount of Olives, directly east of the ancient Temple Mount. It is almost as if we could reach out and touch it. Dominus Flevit, Latin for the Lord God weeps, or the tears of God. Tradition says that on this spot, but of course no one knows exactly where, Jesus stood when he looked out over the city on his last journey to Jerusalem, looked and wept, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft I would have gathered thee as a hen gathereth her chicks, and ye would not. A few days later, atop the mount, in the close and confiding group of his apostles, he made the prophetic answers to their questions as to the future that we have recorded and fully retranslated in Matthew 24 prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed, the Jewish people scattered, their house, specifically that means the temple, left unto them desolate. We hear the same words and sense the same image in the third Nephi expression to the 2,500 gathered at the temple in the land bountiful. Only here, 
all three tenses are represented. He says, I have gathered you, speaking of the past of the house of Israel. And, he says, I would have, speaking of those who refused him, in that land, and finally, promises, I will gather. And gathering, as we learn from insights in modern times, wasn't just gathering so that he might form a community that could link arms in the cause of building the kingdom of God and coming unto him with fullness of heart. No, it meant more precisely gathering in order that there could be conferred upon these who by then would have become worthy all of the glories of the house of God, the temple. Gathering is for the purpose of building and dedicating and then receiving and worshiping in the house of God. The imagery also hints of language in Isaiah where, as he says to the Nephites, it isn't just that the wings, the wings of the mother hen, provide protection. It is that he may, quote, nourish them. So here is the, again, connection to the temple which in Jewish lore has often been portrayed as the very navel of the earth, connecting heaven and earth with life-giving nourishment. I am come, he said often, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The more abundant life is transmitted in sanctuaries that are his house. We know further from a prophecy in the Old Testament that the Son, and here there is wordplay, both in Hebrew and in English, Son, S-U-N, the source of light, and Son, S-O-N, the only begotten. The Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his wings and wings is an English translation of extremities, which could mean, of course, his arms and hands, as it so often did by his touch, but also even his feet. Jesus tried, and to put it starkly, failed to form that community that would link arms and return to a newly consecrated temple for the fullness of their blessings. And he wept. As we stand here, I cannot forbear describing a memory which is also tinctured with anticipation. The Tabernacle Choir, more than 300 voices strong, stood right here, Dominus Flevitt, in front of this church and facing outward 
to that magnificent vista and sang the very words that have precedent as part of the new song and the word, the core word, hallelujah. They sang hallelujah from the Mount of Olives while standing here on the Mount of Olives. And that foreshadows the day when there will be singing such as has never been heard in this world. It was an angelic choir that welcomed Jesus into the world at Bethlehem. Someone has said correctly that Joseph Smith put the sopranos back in the heavenly choir. Another way of saying that woman and all that she fulfills and represents is in the teaching of the modern prophet restored to the position she has been so often denied. It was again an angelic choir, we may suppose, that welcomed Jesus back into the very presence of God. Flights of angels likely sang him to sleep. And it is certain from all the literature of the last days, apocalyptic, eschatological, to use the jargon, but the fullness of the winding up scene, all such scriptures forecast a celestial lyric, a singing of a new song spoken of in Psalms, when he brings with him a choir who will sing to him, with him, for him. And in our own Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, we have even been given the lyrics that we, it says, from the least unto the greatest, shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, shall see eye to eye, shall lift up their voice, doesn't say lift up their voices, their voice, meaning in unity, and with the voice together sing this new song and it includes the words the Lord hath gathered all things in one the earth hath travailed and brought forth her strength truth is established in her bowels and the heavens have smiled upon her and she is clothed with the glory of her God for those of us who have lived life lamenting the absence of skill in musical performance and who have been blessed in the presence of others who are gifted there will be the opportunity to make a joyful noise but seriously we will be given as I understand the prophecies a remembrance as well as a skill to bring both the words and the music together to the glory of God. And we will sing glory and honor and power and might. And there will be no tears from the Christ.
accept tears of fulfillment and joy. I dare to say that compared to that day of illumination, all the singing we do in this world is a kind of whistling in the dark. And now, as you have walked through the most important seven days in all history, on the very ground where these events occurred 2,000 years ago, let me remind you of three gardens. The Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb and testify to you of the moment that came as a great benediction to us as we stood in the garden known as the garden tomb where by special permission the tabernacle choir was assembled. They stood in circular moonlight rows and faced Gerald Audley, their conductor, who was standing just outside the opening into that ancient rock tomb. Not far away was, as they well knew, the traditional place called the Place of the Skull. They chose to sing on that occasion from an anthem known in Christendom as When I survey the wondrous cross. And the third stanza speaks of the head and the hands and the feet of Jesus, from which sorrow as well as love flowed, mingled down. And the song asks, did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? The choir, having gone through the rigors and the joys of concertizing in America through the holy days of the Christmas season, were spent and exhausted from their tight schedule in the Holy Land. The conductor, therefore, was saying to them, sing only in a whisper. They were doing lip synchronization with a pre-recording and videotaping. But the longer they were there, the more the impact of that place and its significance sank into their souls. And they pled for the privilege once, just once, of singing it full crescendo. As they sang, the climactic words, love so amazing, love divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. It reverberated with power in every direction. I bear witness in his name that so did the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and plead that those reverberations may continue in your lives to the end 
of this life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.